Welcome to Stories from the Wild. I'm Stella Horgan, your host, and today we're launching this brand new podcast with a conversation with the Reverend Dr. Paul Verain, or Bishop Verain as he's more commonly known. Paul is a Methodist minister, a veteran anti-apartheid activist, champion of the poor, and vigorous human rights advocate. He was born in 1952 and drafted into mandatory military service in 1970, where he witnessed firsthand the atrocities of apartheid. He launched the Port Elizabeth branch of the Detainees' Parents Support Committee in the 1980s and sheltered activists fleeing the security police. He played a key role mediating the xenophobic violence in 2008. In my opinion, he's one of South Africa's truly wild hearts, a national treasure. Being our very first podcast, let me tell you who we are. I work with Becky Harmon, who handles the technical side of things on the podcast. We run a non-profit organization in rural Limpopo province called Zingela Ulwazi Trust. We deal with a range of gnarly South African issues, including access to resources and information, and human and environmental rights violations. We're driven by a deep love of nature and an equally deep love of South Africa. So in this podcast, we explore how people navigate the complexity of our tangled society here in South Africa. How do we keep functioning with so much unresolved trauma? Is it possible for us to heal, to integrate our experiences, or do we just need to keep treading water? I've spent most of my adult life exploring these questions after being immobilized and pretty much dismantled by post-traumatic stress disorder in the 1990s. Like most of us, there were several distressing incidents that triggered it. But the one that did the big damage was when I was 19 and a stranger attacked me. Naively, many would say stupidly, I had given him a lift on a cold Joburg night and he strangled me. I fought so hard my teeth were loose the next day, but I got away, and so did he. He disappeared through the khaki bus that skirted the railway line on that silent, bleak, high-felt night. It took me ten years to realize that I had PTSD. By that time, I had fled first to Zambia and then to Australia with my then-partner. In the shelter of that very organized country, I embarked on a journey to find out how trauma works and if it can be healed. This was before trauma therapy was a mainstream idea. It was the early 90s, and we were emerging from the era of the stiff upper lip, the grin and bear it, cake noot, fokfurt, otherwise known as drink more alcohol, take more drugs, work harder, or insert whichever addiction fits. So I researched and studied and worked as a psychotherapist for several years. I've been back in South Africa for six years now, and I'm troubled at the unmitigated trauma that I see here, individual and collective. I'm also intrigued at the resilience. So in this podcast, I wanted to share conversations with really interesting people who've had to deal with the ravages of trauma. My hope is that these conversations would be helpful to listeners. Often, when we hear how other people have dealt with anguish or difficulties, it can help to shift something within us, or at the very least, enrich us in some way.
I also wanted to share with you the remarkable work that Paul Verain is doing, the hearings that he and teams of people have set up around South Africa to deal with the horror that haunts our country. So, let's begin. Stick with us and you'll hear a man with original thought, unshakable convictions, who also has a very tender heart and moves with vulnerability in a most unique way. that has just been given to me is Sutu number 183. So if I arrive at a place anywhere and they're wanting to tell the people inside that I'm arriving, they'll start singing the hymn. You know, I mean, that's part of the African tradition. that the foundation of faith is doubt and I think that the nurturing of faith happens in the unresolvable issues that we that face our humanity and not in a way that it's a kind of God in the gaps thing but in hopefully the God who accompanies into meaninglessness. Because, I mean, could you get anything more meaningless than the cross? Really? I mean, it's a load of gobbledygook, you know? Really? Uh, and it's, its darkness is so profound, you know? Except if you, John, you know, who doesn't allow any darkness near the cross mm. at all, you know? So I suppose it's that pendulum that enables me, you know, on Sunday I have to prepare a sermon or two mm-hmm. and I have to constantly struggle with my disbelief, you know, and my feeling that God, the God of the uh, lucky packet is completely impotent. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, I think that a lot of stuff that happens in the church is just gobbledygook. So, I suppose it's the God of the gaps, you know. When I've got this huge thing that I can't solve, I can put God in there and it'll resolve the issues for me. And I, I, I'm feeling less and less that that's what faith is about and what the journey with God is about. Is that because... Um... If we have a situation that seems irresolvable and we put God into it, our agency sort of goes on hold. Is that what you're talking about? We we, we sort of outsource our solution? (laughs) That's a good word. Uh, Yes. Uh, Yes. That the involvement of God is is an opportunity for me to abdicate. 
And in actual fact, I think it's I think it it implies the exact opposite. What is it? What's that? Tell me about that. Well, so in other words, if I'm going to involve God, then I better understand that the way God is going to work in the thing is not uh, by parachuting down into the place and rescuing a couple of fish and leaving the rest to, you know, it's going to, it will demand every dimension of my person, my physical energies, my intellectual strength, my relationship potential, it will, it will touch every part of what my humanity is about. Paul's been a public figure in South Africa for over 30 years. As well as having an adventurous intellect and a passionate perspective on South Africa, he's a survivor. Not a shipwrecked kind of survivor. He's tremendously purposeful and active in the world. So I wanted to know how he does it. How has he survived decades of trauma, his own and hundreds of other people's? What got him through the horror, the violations? What makes him so resilient? What enables him to persist to take on those who violate human rights? So we had conversations with Paul at four different locations. The first was Melrose Church, nestled in a very affluent Johannesburg suburb. The congregation meets at an immaculately maintained school with rolling lawns, sports fields, the kind of institution captains of industry send their children to. They had their own band singing Christian pop songs and served fresh croissant after the service. Next, we drove to the north of Johannesburg to Grace Point Methodist Church in Midrand. It's luxurious with two big fireplaces, nests of new leather couches, and an espresso machine in the lobby. You'll hear the tinkling of post-Sunday service teacups being washed in the background. Our third meeting was at the 9am service at Clay Oven Informal Settlement on Witkopen Road in Johannesburg's northern suburbs. It's a poor and notoriously violent settlement wedged between Clay Oven Family Restaurant on one side and a Porsche dealership on the other side, an archetypal South African scene of poverty and struggle beside tremendous wealth. This service took place in a corner of the settlement cordoned off for worship, under a tree. The earth had been swept, everything brought to order. Three rows of brightly coloured plastic chairs faced a trestle table covered with zebra print cloth, the altar. A group of a dozen children had their own small, colourful plastic chairs at the front of the congregation. A sense of deliberate order and maternal welcome separated the worship area from the surrounding shacks and groups of men hunched over fires. Behind us, six lanes of unrelenting traffic roared by. It's a raw setting of terrible poverty, volatility and, I imagine, immense daily effort. Let us pray together, and will you pray with me, please? We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you have fed us in this sacrament. That you have fed us in this sacrament. United us with Christ. United us with Christ. And given us a foretaste. Given us a foretaste. Of the heavenly banquet. Of the heavenly banquet. 
prepared for all humanity. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. The last place we met Paul was at the Soweto Community Centre where he lives with about 150 refugees and some very vulnerable people. It's a vibrant centre. There are people everywhere. You'll hear a choir competition in the background, his phone going off for some new alert. He seems always to be on call. is an unapologetic voice for the poor and marginalized. He's persistently vocal about what many South Africans would rather not hear or deal with. So I said to them, every time you come to the communion table, just remember the 20 million hungry people and stop titivating Jesus to such an extent that he's got so much makeup on him that he can hardly see out of the church doors here. His most recent media storm was in 2015, Paul refused to evict over 3,000 refugees from Central Methodist Church in downtown Johannesburg. The inner city building had been designed for administrative and worship purposes, not residential, and it was in terrible disrepair as more and more vulnerable people moved in. The authorities failed to find solutions for their placement. There were health hazards, accusations of criminal activity, not enough toilets and severe overcrowding. Paul often complained that they talked more about toilets than Jesus at Central. City officials and local businesses demanded an end to the refuge, but Paul remained defiantly protective of these people. He insisted that government take responsibility, as was their mandate, to provide adequate housing for displaced people. The former bishop of the Central Methodist Church, Father Paul Varane. He's on the line to me now from Johannesburg. Uh, Bishop, good afternoon to you. We have police raiding a church backed up by army soldiers. What's your reaction to this action by the authorities? You know, particularly in the light of two things. The first is that uh, with the, the recent xenophobic stuff, and recognizing that most of the people that are living in Central Methodist are foreign nationals, uh, it is particularly insensitive, I think. Uh, and secondly, uh, considering what I know of some of the vulnerability of some of the people there who, who are vulnerable um, psychologically um, because of what has happened to them in their country of origin, um, and then at 3 o'clock in the morning is very, very reminiscent. You know, there are two things that make me feel as if this is a bit like a déjà vu. Uh, first of all, uh, the kind of uh, insisting on documentation is a lot like the past laws, uh, particularly in the light that the uh, Department of Home Affairs are really struggling to keep pace with the bureaucracy that is confronting them at the moment. And so to some degree, some people not having documentation is really not their own fault. 
And secondly, um, having experienced this myself at three o'clock in the morning by the security police, uh, way back in the very bad dark days of apartheid, this reminded me of a kind of fascist intervention, uh, which actually is not prepared to reason in any shape or form. And then lastly, just having heard this very last report uh, from your own reporter, my concern about the almost shutdown of exposure to true information that's going on. I think there are some very, very serious human rights that are being overstepped here. That recording's from an Eyewitness News report in May 2015. After years of acrimony with officials and with the church building severely damaged, Central closed its doors to refugees and vulnerable people in 2015, and the bishop moved his base to the Soweto Community Centre. I mean, can you imagine? When I went to see Tabo Mbeki with the Council of Churches at the time, they asked me to come at the time of all the refugees. And they were so annoyed with me because I walked into the house and I said, hmm, I could use this accommodation. <laughs> <laughs> Paul has his finger directly on the pulse of traumatised South Africa. He's currently setting up public hearings around the country to deal with the anguish of poverty, human rights violations, violence and the corrosive leftover legacy of apartheid. These hearings are known as spaces of hope. They could be one of the things that save South Africa, or to be less dramatic, that at least takes steps to steady the ship. You know, my imagination would be that First of all, we try and deal with the disparity of power and see where that takes us. So that instead of the them and us, we try and shift it more into a cooperation. But when I stepped down as the chair... He's referring to the Church Unity Commission, of which he was the chair. I was then mandated to create spaces of hope. And it was from the spaces of hope that the hearings emerged. And that was just by mistake. Two people came and saw me at Albert Street School and said to me, don't you want to open the hearings again? And that's how it started. Were they referring to to the TRC hearings? Yes. We've needed to be quite careful not to create that expectation with people. Because because of the stuff around reparations mm-hmm. and because of the betrayal that's happened around um, the reparations. So, you know, the hearings first of all started in Polar Park and in the Vaal. But they came and I went to the Church Unity Commission and said, this is what I'd like to do. I drew up a concept document. That was Wednesday. I drew up the, doc- the document, presented it on Thursday, and it was adopted by the Church Unity Commission. And we now have chapters in every province. And I go for my first hearing in Swaziland, if I can get in, on because I was arrested with Jane Naidu in Swaziland, you know, um, to do a hearing with Rwandan people in, in Swaziland. And so we have... Hearings in the diaspora for Swaz, uh, for um, Zimbabweans, Rwandans, people from the DRC, and we're just about to start with Sri Lanka, I think. 
We've got a huge Sri Lankan community in Durban, right. actually. Yeah. Well, aside. The interesting thing about Rwanda, Zimbabwe and Sri Lanka is that they are the most infiltrated by intelligence in this country. So I have Zimbabweans living on my property and there are agents for the National Intelligence Agency on the property, you know, constantly checking that we're not going to overthrow whatever is not in place. Well, that's very disturbing, isn't it? Yeah. But, I mean, you know, I've lived with that for long enough. And, uh, yeah. And, and for these, um, the hearings, I'm very interested in the motivation and the purpose and what, what you think is going to result from these hearings. And I, I had a question around, is it enough that people are witnessed? Or what is it in these hearings that makes for transformational moments? I mean, for me, the hearings have been an education, like you can, an exponential uh, education. And so we've got a chapter in every province, and everyone is different, completely different. They have their own kind of personnel, management, focus, everything. There's nothing that's the same in any one of them. And... And in some provinces, there are several. Um, so, for instance, in the Tau, the holding group is Diaconia Council of Churches and the Dennis Hurley Institute for Reconciliation. And in the Tau, we've had now a few hearings at Izingolweni, which is Port Chepston. And I think I've, I, I now managed to get the Natal group to, to go down to Kolobeni, which is where that young man was um, shot for that Bazooka. community. Yeah. Yeah. And there I've managed, strangely, one of the psychologists that I'm working with at Pretoria Central Prison, and then a person who is a specialist in agroponics and fish farming and all the rest of it, mm-hmm. John Dearden, who's had success in Zimbabwe and, Zim- and Zambia, is also coming down to try and see, because if that community doesn't move, that Australian company will start mining. The stakes, the imaginative stakes for communities and for chiefs particularly, and in Dunas, is too high to resist. And tell me, how do you structure those hearings? So do, do you have a suggestion for, for how they're set up and who the panel is? And then do you sort of replicate that, or is it quite ad hoc? It's It's different. So Cape Town, the major focus in the Cape Town area has been the old Group Areas Act. So, for instance, they're very involved in District 6 stuff. And now as District 6 starts to develop and people, property entrepreneurs, you know, will be going for it. So that's... That's the big focus. And in Cape Town, the thing is held together by a woman called Ruth Rice. Ruth is a clinical psychologist, Brown Fisher's daughter. And Di Oliver, who was in the car with Molly when she was killed. Her husband was killed as well. And so they kind of hold it together. But it's also quite black sashish, if you know what I mean. And and so Mary Burton is in it, and it gets, it's it's well organised. You you with me? Eastern Cape is as the Eastern Cape is 
exactly like that. So I managed to get the four rectors of the universities together, Rhodes, uh, Walter Sisulu, Forte and NMU. And we're looking at designing an economic paradigm for development in the Karoo because of fracking and all the rest of it. So we're looking at wind power and solar heating and then maybe with the departments of biology and geology stuff around alternative medicines relating to aloes and that whole that whole natural medicines and yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Okay, so it's very broad. And the very, hearings don't very have a, there's there's no mm-hmm. limitation on what people mm-hmm. are bringing. So are, are communities invited to come and and speak at hearings, or how yes. how do you approach it? Is yes. it and it's for whatever's on the table. Yes, yeah. And some of the hearings might be one on one. Two weeks ago, I was asked please to come back to Craddock for two things. One of the child of Fort Kalata that I spoke about this morning, she wasn't born when her father was killed. She's very angry. She's very angry with the TRC, actually. And then that plays out in the in, in her relationships and the rest. So it'll be a one-on-one thing. And a lot of it's therapy, actually, you know. But, but, symbolically, the, the monument that was raised to the Craddock Fall has been vandalized and the rest. And the community is wanting to use that as an opportunity now to speak to one another. Paul was recently called to the Free State to deal with the death of a child on a farm, one of those terrible shootings you hear about. I mean, there were some parts of the stuff that the farmer said that was very sad. One young farmer stood up and he stood up and he said, you know, I'm a young white man and I really have no opportunities in this country. None. You know, and I... And he was very tearful, you know. And and some of the people in the room, the white woman particularly, were also weepy. And then, then a pharmacist also stood up and said, you know, some of the stuff that has happened on the farms, some of the stuff is terrible. Uh, Women have been raped, people have been murdered, and it's not just the murder, it's the mutilation that takes place of their bodies and the rest of that, you know. Now, you can't sit and listen to that, you know. Let me say, even if you're a hardened politician and you would say, well, they deserve it, you know, they've had the... You can't. I mean, when people expose that huge vulnerability there must there must be another way of being able to walk with one another in this thing and and uh, you know the black community came up they were the ones who asked for it and um and they are the ones that say things like we don't want to be used by politicians to create chaos in this place you know, we're, we're not interested in that. We're not interested in that dialogue, but we've got to speak realistically. Paul visits communities around the country dealing with a range of issues. So, for instance, I went and visited New Lago. Do you know that's near, that's the township near Uchis. 
and um, wasn't a very big meeting, but they, they'd, they'd said to me there was land issues, so I took a lawyer from Lawyers for Human Rights, and there were youth issues, so I took somebody who works with Harambi, you know, Harambi, that youth empowerment organization, and I went. The stuff that is happening in the mining sector is, you know, it, if it was just environment, you know, but it's interesting how these things interconnect. If it was just environment, it would be simple at some level. Because you go and you, excuse me saying this, bastardize the environment and then you employ 40,000 people to renovate, rehabilitate, restore the environment. And let me tell you, you can even make money out of that. A hang of a lot of money by the recreation having raped out of it what you needed to. Forgive me being so crude, but... But that's, that's, for me, the reality. But, let's, but that's not the only issue. You've got... So I was in Secunda this last week. And in Secunda, 50 children that are just all over the place. Not just on the streets, scrounging for food and, 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 and. Now, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot do that kind of thing and think that there's no payback. You know? So, for instance, in Clarkstorp, Kanana, Kuma, Matosana, Tihane, gangs that recruit boys and girls from the age of, you want to guess, five. No. And so I've done work with some of the gangs. And, and why? Well... We've got no food. We haven't got parents. Most of us are looking after three or four siblings younger than we are. And so the police actually called me in. And they do economic crimes during the day and relationship crimes, as the police call it, during the night. So you can work out what that is yourself. And um, it's anarchy. So this is some of the background to the hearings. As a long-standing witness to South Africa, Paul can tell you hundreds and hundreds of stories. It seems like we are, are such um, a ravaged country. Mm-hmm. We are so torn apart. There's so much comes up around what, what South Af- what's needed in South Africa, you know. And as you're speaking, we can see this incredibly broad spectrum of need. And there are, you know, there are profound questions, you know. What, what do we do with what we've lost? What do we do with that? Well, you know, I mean, it's, so it, it ranges through individual trauma, yeah. through right through to the environment. I mean, it's an interesting, let me use a little bit of my, my, my discipline. You know, this, the, the sense is that Genesis and Exodus and those things were probably written maybe 500 years after the event. And what is fascinating for me is that, so you write a liberation story which focuses itself around the Exodus. But you then begin to start looking at where do we come from? What is our identity? So you've got all that Abrahamic... uh, But before that, you tell the story of creation. 
almost as if to say our human relationships cannot be divorced from the environment. What we do to one another, we do to the environment. So, I mean, Anglo has tentatively agreed to have an environment in Daba around that whole Mpumalanga area. So, you, you asked, what is the intention of the hearings? I suppose part of the intention is to, to see if there's a place for healing. So, in Eshawi, 17 rape victims came to the hearing. You with me? In Izingoweni, people who hadn't spoken about the trauma of two massacres, one that took place on Christmas Day in 1995, where 40 people were, were butchered, and one that took place in 1985 on Good Friday, where it, it feels as if it was a kind of Good Friday wedding thing. And there, too, about 40 young people were incinerated, basically, in a hut that was thatched, that was set on fire, and the bodies burnt beyond recognition. Some mothers lost more than two, or parents lost two children, and have never spoken about it. And part of the reason they haven't had the freedom to speak about it is because of the tensions between the ANC and the IFP, which continue to this day, you see, in those areas. And so speaking is incriminating, you know. And, and particularly at this, this one I've just told you about the incineration, they had to bury all the bodies in, in a mass grave. The grass grows over the grave, and every year they burn the grass. And so that, that trauma is reignited, and people can't... I mean, a woman came to the one hearing walking with um, a walker. She came in and she sat for three hours and basically went like that for three hours. And when her daughter said that it's since her children were burnt in that thing that she's been like this, clearly the affect around the woman became far more traumatized when her daughter told the story. So she, she's got recognition, but it hasn't got access to being able to verbalize the agony. So I think in some instances, you see, I think, I know that they had therapeutic processes available at the TRC, but it was proscribed, it had a very specific political agenda, it achieved the miraculous in the time that was left to it, but I mean, I don't think that we have even begun to understand the ravages of, of the nation. That's the point, isn't it? We haven't even begun to understand the ravages of the nation, let alone the consequences of all this wounding and trauma. This is the end of part one of our conversation. Join us for part two where the conversation gets more personal and we find out how Paul Varane became so resilient. Tu me lo unas